In March of this year, Barner reported that one out of four Americans currently identify themselves as either an agnostic or an atheist. An agnostic is one who does not know for sure if God exists or not. Some would clarify that definition by saying an agnostic believes that there is a God, but he is unknowable. An atheist, on the other hand, would say that there is no God at all, and they are convinced and they are fully convinced of that fact. Today, these 25% of Americans are often referred to as skeptics. Two-thirds of these individuals, though, have claimed in their questionnaires that they at one time had great association in one way or another with the Christian faith. But their reasons for leaving were as follows. Number one, they no longer believe that the Bible could be trusted as the Word of God. Number two, they don't believe the integrity of the church. And number three, the world appears to oppose the Christian faith and to have done an adequate job of explaining it away. They have appeared to have been moved from an assured Christian position to a position of skepticism. A skeptic is defined as a person inclined to question or to doubt all accepted opinions. And this morning we continue addressing their second objection, and that is their objection to the church. We have to first understand that their objection came by experience and perception. This is what they have experienced within church, and this is what they perceive of church. And so we must address it along those lines. I would like to read from the actual report itself, because I feel it's important that we understand their objections before we can begin to answer them. From the report, the report concluded, Churches have done little to convince skeptics to reevaluate their position. In fact, because more than two-thirds of skeptics have attended church or churches in the past, for most, they attended for an extended period of time, their dismissal of God, the Bible, and the church is not theoretical in nature. For most skeptics thinks Christian churches as follows. Groups of people who share a common physical space and have some common religious views, but are not personally connected to each other in any meaningful or life-changing way. Number two, churches are merely organizations that add little, if any, value to their communities. Their greatest value stems from the limited times they serve the needy in the community. Number three, they are organizations that stand for all the wrong things. Wars, the prevention of gay marriage, and a woman's freedom to control her body, sexual and physical violence perpetrated on people by religious authority figures, mixing religious beliefs with political policy and action. And number four, churches are led by people who have not earned their position of influence by proving their love of humankind, and thus not deserving of the trust. To answer these objections, we proceeded from the point of view that we must first evaluate what we do as a church collectively and how we perceive church individually. Because I believe that's where the problems all begin. With how we view church. What is the purpose of church? Or what is the church? And those are the two questions that we answered in our first two times together addressing this objection. We began with what is the church by looking at the biblical definition of the church. The study of the church in the Bible is called ecclesiology. It is a portion of scripture that defines for us what the church is. And there are five words that are associated with the church. We are God's people, we are God's body, we are God's building, we are God's bride, and we are God's family. And we articulated and expounded on each one of those five positions. Last week we took the second step, and we looked at the purpose of the church. What is the purpose of the church? And by that I'm stating the reason for which something is done or in which something exists. So we asked the question to each and every one of you. 
what was the purpose of the church? And we asked you to take your answer and to compare it to that in which we discovered in Scripture. Why do I say that? Because I agree with this pastor when he wrote in his book, People have all kinds of ideas about the church and about what makes churches and why churches should exist. If we were to survey people in churches and ask them, what is the main purpose of the church or why does the church exist, sadly, we would get mostly the wrong answers. We found that the New Testament clarifies the purpose of the church in a three-dimensional manner. Each one of the dimensions starts with the letter E. So we called it E3. Exaltation, edification, and evangelation. Now that being said, we also discovered that there was a disconnect between the pastor's idea of what church should be and the congregant's idea of what church should be. Let me explain. This one individual said in his book, I read about a poll that was taken some time ago. They asked a thousand people what kind of church you are looking for. And then they went on to ask the people, what do you think the purpose of the church is? Or why does the church exist? Out of the thousand people who were polled, 89% of them uh, responded to the question, why does the church exist, by saying... The church's purpose is to take care of my needs and my family's needs. So understand that. Their understanding, the congregation's understanding, these 1,000 people polled, 89% of them stated the church's purpose is to take care of my family's needs and my needs. Now, how did they come to such a conclusion? Is it just a misconception? Or is it reflectant of a philosophy that they've carried in with them from the world? Do they view church in such a way because they came to the conclusion themselves after working through the process? Or was it a presupposed bias or an idea that they carried in with them? Now, when the pastors of the same churches were asked the same questions, 95% of them said the purpose of the church was to win the world for Christ. And 5% of them said the purpose of the church was to take care of the needs of its members. The disconnect. Why does that disconnect exist? As we have learned very clearly, God's purpose for the church was that we are here for the exaltation of God. We are here for the edification of the saints, and we are here for the evangelization of the world. But how and why does this great gulf of disconnect exist between the pastors and the congregation? That's a question that we need to answer. The reason we began this portion of the study the way we did The reason we decided to answer the objection of the world uh, concerning the church, we began by addressing the church itself, you and I. We discovered and rediscovered, maybe for for the first time or once again, what is the church and what is the purpose of the church. If we are unclear on either one of those two answers... If we cannot articulate what is the church or what is the purpose of the church, what has happened is that we have created a vacuum waiting to be filled. If we don't know what the church is, and we don't know what the purpose of the church is, we have created a vacuum within the hearts and the minds of the people. A vacuum that then can be filled by something else. And I want to put forth this morning that whenever a vacuum is created such as that, you then have the groundwork for revisionism and for reinvention. When you don't know what something is, and you don't know why something exists, within that ambiguity, within that space, of ignorance, you have created a vacuum that's waiting to be filled by something else. 
We have seen this tactic used in so many different ways around the world over so many different centuries. By divorcing the history of a people from its people, you can then create revisionism and reinvention. When we don't know what the past is, and we don't know why we are here, and we don't know what the purpose of our existence is, we create a vacuum. You're following me? Tracking with me? And that can be filled in. It's like a blank in the sentence that's waiting to be filled in by something. We've done that here in this nation, haven't we? How many today truly understand the constitution in which this nation was built upon? Or the intention of our founding fathers? We're only talking about a 200-year period of history, a little over a 200-year period of history. But we've created a vacuum in most people's minds where they are, cannot associate themselves with the past and the purposes, and therefore they can be led to where any, ever anyone desires to lead them. And we've done the exact same thing. In fact, so many people are claiming today in books and in preaching and in broadcasting, now is the time to reinvent the church. Do we actually need to reinvent the church or let me propose this. Do we need to rediscover what the church was always meant to be? I think there's a big difference. Anytime we want to try to reinvent God's, something that God has created perfectly, we ruin it. Now is not the time for revisionism. Now is not the time for reinventing. Now is the time for rediscovering. As one wrote, in his book, we are living in a time, however, where people are saying and screaming, we need to reinvent the church. Again, I say to you, no, we do not. Our core beliefs and our core mission must not change one iota. As another scholar wrote in his book, all across our country, in fact, all around the world, there is there are these efforts being made to reinvent the church. The fear is that the church is not speaking to the time. People are not listening. The church has something has somehow become irrelevant within the culture. It has become obsolete. Now, he is not saying that we have become obsolete because we are no longer culturally aware. He is saying that we have become obsolete because we have become culturally saturated. We have become more like the world than that of reflecting God. That's the full context of what he is saying. I believe that because so many within the church today, reflectant in their idea of why the church should exist to fulfill my needs and my family's needs, when the, same, the pastors of the same church are on a completely different page of the playbook, it tells me that because of their lack of knowing what the church is and what the true purpose of the church is, they were left with a blank that allowed for reinvention or revisionism. And therefore, by changing the history, by changing the past, we are affecting the culture going forward. If you are with me in your Bibles in Colossians chapter 2, I'd like to begin by placing this verse in your mind for consideration. It is a warning that Paul gives us, and it begins in verse 8 of chapter 2. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy, by empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental principles of this world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled with Him who is the head of all rule and authority. Highlight those verses. If you defile your Bible, highlight those verses. It's a warning. 
It's a warning stating to all of us that the philosophies of this world were going to challenge the core tenets of the Christian faith. If we do not know why the church is and why the church exists, the purpose of the church, we allow for the gap of reinvention or revisionism that will be filled by the philosophies of this world if not held to the doctrines of God. That's my point. That's exactly what I believe has happened. And we need to be made aware of this. I'm going to ask you to consider things today that you may have never considered before. You say, wow, that's a real feat. We haven't considered them because when you live in a culture, you become saturated with that culture. When you live within ideologies and certain thinking, you become saturated with those ideologies and certain thinking. It's inevitable. It happens. But throughout history, Christianity has cut against the grain of some of those ideologies and philosophies. The Bible asks us to see the world through the lens of the Scriptures. It is called a biblical worldview, a Christian worldview. I use them separately today because people are now currently trying to define them as two different things, biblical and Christian. We can be Christians but not view the world through the lens of the Bible, which I think is a gross mistake. So let's call it a biblical worldview. Now, Some believe that if you adopt such a worldview, it is incredibly dangerous to do so. I believe that they come to those conclusions because they misunderstand what we are saying. I am not going to tell you in the next half hour that our biblical worldview does not allow us to take advantage of the technological advancements of today. Our biblical worldview is not going to tell me that I cannot take advantage of the scientific advantages of today, such as our modern medicine. When all else fails, if prayer doesn't work, take a pill. But that being said, those are things that we can benefit from. But there are other philosophies, ideals, and tenets that we hold to here in the United States of America that are so old and ancient, but yet we feel that they are so new and revitalizing, and revolutionary in their nature, when in actuality they've been around for thousands of years. There's nothing new under the sun, folks. Nothing new at all. In the wake of this ability to reinvent the church, we have seen in the United States of America more than anywhere in the world the attempt to do so. You might have seen as you peruse the uh, internet and you are looking at websites of different churches, you might have come across a new church in your area. And it will state their name and their location and their service times, and then they will have a catch line, something like this. Church in a brand new way. Or, church, but not like you've ever seen before. Church, but not like the church of your parents. They are already stating from the beginning that their idea and philosophy is that they're trying to reinvent the church. Now, I am not talking about aesthetics. I'm not talking about peripherals. I'm talking about core tenant beliefs concerning ecclesiology, the study of the church. I'm not talking about an organ versus a guitar and drums. I'm not talking about a modern-day facility concerning a classic a building with stained glass windows that is 150 years old. I'm not talking about peripherals or aesthetics. I'm talking about the core nature of the church that I believe the Bible does not allow us to fudge with and to compromise or to change. I'm not talking about the package. I'm talking about what's inside the package. Let's be clear. Though I want to make it clear that I think some are pushing the boundaries so far on the aesthetics that they do 
take away from the core values that the church may state that they hold to. For example, we may introduce our worship service with contemporary music, choruses rather than hymns on occasion, or hymns rather than choruses, depending on who's leading. If Chris, contemporary, if Derek, we're going back 100 years. That's great, because they're all about him, right? We can, we can live with that. Guitars, drums, keyboards aren't acceptable, but a pipe organ is, really. You just have to plug one in, and the other one has a guy with a big bellow behind the stages going, I hope this song ends soon, you know. I don't want to get hung up on those things. I don't want to get hung up that people use televisions for overflow rooms or even the, the conversation of the multi-site design of placing and planting churches with a screen rather than a pastor. Those are other discussions that we can have. I'm talking about the core tenets. But those can be, these aesthetics can be violated. For example, if you were to walk in here on an Easter Sunday, a Resurrection Sunday, and Chris began the worship service with a song that he had selected to remind everybody that who is not in Christ that they are on a road to destruction and he opened with ACDC's Highway to Hell, all of you would be like, what happened? Chris just hit his mid-life crisis. And then to exaggerate the point, at the end of service, right before the altar call, he follows it up with a rendition of Running with the Devil from Van Halen. (laughs) Those certainly can detract from the exaltation of God, can't they? Those songs were written to glorify those positions, not to run from those positions. And then you'd have the debate, well, can't we take those and use them for God? I don't want to get into that discussion, but no, we are not going to be using those songs here. I don't believe that they serve the purpose we want them to serve. But I do believe in the reinvention in church here in America, we have stumbled into some very concerning things. I'm going to list five for you. And then we're going to talk about not only the reinvention of church, but the reinvention of biblical teaching. I believe we have reinvented church here in the United States of America in five different ways. Four are unique, I believe, to the American experience, and the last one we've seen in other nations around the world. Here in the United States of America, as we have lost the true identity and understanding of ecclesiology, the study of the church, those who wanted to reinvent the church to become more attractive to those outside the church have built the church on entertainment principles, number one. Is the church here to entertain people? The answer is no. That's not the purpose of the church. What's the purpose of the church? We learned it last week. Exaltation, edification, evangelization. Not entertainment. Entertainment was used because it was found to be very effective in drawing a lot of people. That's definitely what entertainment does here in the United States of America. We are truly an entertainment-driven culture. The spokesmen's today in our nation for some of the most fundamental, profound issues of life and living are not scholars, but celebrities. You know, why is it that a certain philosophy can hire a celebrity to be a spokesman for them, thinking that he or she is going to be more effective than the scholars themselves? Well, because they want to sell it through pop culture. My problem is, if I didn't like his or her movies for the last three times, why would I listen to them about this subject matter over here? No celebrity is going to tell me who I'm going to vote for, folks. I'm sorry. No celebrity is going to tell me about my religious values. I don't believe they've earned that position just simply because that they're a celebrity. We're an entertainment culture. There's no doubt about it. Why is it that when you check out of any store here in America, you are inundated with papers all about what the celebrities are doing behind the scenes? Honestly, I don't care what the celebrities are doing behind the scenes. They got more problems than I do. Let's just be honest. I'm not going to have a celebrity tell me about marriage. 
you want to tell me about divorce, I'll listen to you, but not marriage. That's not going to be my standard. So the church adopted entertainment. We're going to make entertainment the focal point of the church. We're going to gather a large group of people to the church. We're going to entertain them in hopes, and this is out of their own literature, in hopes that we create what they call a ministry moment that I will state is nothing more than feelings, emotions, and some personal experience. Their ministry moment, this entertainment, this skit, this drama, this whatever, has led them to a ministry moment where they are now willing to be receptive to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Really. I can just see Paul doing hand puppets. All right, I want to tell you about the gospel, but first, a little puppet demonstration. Here, this is me. This is the Romans. This is me being whipped by the Romans. <laughs> you know, all right, are you ready to receive Jesus Christ? Now, I am being very facetious. My personality is overflowing today. But a ministry moment that is founded in emotions and feelings and some personal experience, to me, is fleeting at best. I'm not looking for an, uh, a ministry moment. I'm looking for that moment of conviction by the Holy Spirit. And it's completely different. How many people are basing life decisions on feelings that you know of? People are falling in and out of love at an epidemic of proportion. I love you. I don't love you today. I love you again, but I don't feel in love with you. I love you again, but I don't feel in love with you today. What does that say? Or simply a personal experience that they had with God and they responded to some invitation and there's no changed life. There's no heart for God in the things of God. There's no desire to grow closer to Him and run farther from the world. And yet they had a ministry moment. I would disagree. Secondly, the church has been built on the corporate business plan where pastors have become CEOs of large empires dealing with millions and millions and millions of dollars. Instead of looking at the Bible to be their guide in the process in which the church should be started, maintained, and function, they look to a business plan that was written not by a board of elders, but by, quote-unquote, a board of directors. Now, there is no doubt that there is a business or an administrative side to running a church here in the United States of America. I'm not negating that fact. We have tax liabilities. We have legal liabilities. We have the responsibility to handle our finances properly, accurately, with integrity. And there are checks and balances from the business world that can help us achieve that. But when the foundation is simply a business plan rather than the Bible itself, we are starting from the wrong position. Instead of the cry to evangelize the world, the discussion behind closed doors, and I have heard these for myself, we must grab further market share within our community. What? Here's what they're actually saying. When they're talking about grabbing further market share within their community, they are talking about not reaching those afar from God or who don't know God with the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are simply targeting Christians who are already in churches and transplanting them to theirs. Paul said, no way. I'll never build on another man's foundation. And within this methodology, many will state we have the fastest growing church in our neighborhood. But what the article may not say, or the website may not say, this growth is due to transplants, those who have left other churches that we have wooed away because we have a better facility, we have better programs, we have better activities, etc. Because our business plan is gaining traction 
And we are growing from implementing a business plan. And here is where the real detriment begins. Where people of these churches are often simply means to an end. That's all they are. Often within churches that are structured like this, people don't matter individually, but collectively. To call into these churches to get prayer because you're about to go into the hospital because of an emergency need. You call your church and you get one of those automated services. Thank you for calling such and such church. We can't answer your phone or call right now, but please follow the instructions carefully. Number one, if you'd like to donate to the church, press one. Number two, if you haven't taken communion for at least a month, we will send it to you free of charge. Number three, if you'd like a prayer request, or this is an emergency, please leave your message. And if we deem worthy, we will get back to you. Unfortunately, I've seen too many, too many churches adopt a business plan before really reading the biblical account of ecclesiology to know how a church is started, structured, and run. And people become a means to an end. Number three, the church is built on the world. One website that I recently went to, it said, our church is like the world to reach the world. Really? Think about that for a minute. They do this for the desire to keep relevant to their current culture. I understand that. And we can have discussions on how that looks and how that is obtained. But if you want to sacrifice what I would call sanctification, to merely look like the world, to win the world, you are greatly mistaken. If you read through the four Gospels, and I hope you have, Jesus Christ was extremely attractive to those who were far away from God. In the Bible, they were called sinners and tax collectors, prostitutes, etc., The religious leaders of that time wanted nothing to do with them, but there was something about Jesus that attracted them to him. I will argue this. It's not that Jesus was like them in any way, shape, or form. He was perfectly holy in every way, sinless in every way. I believe that what what attracted them to him was the fact that he was different, that they saw in him some type of hope, Why should anyone listen to you if you're just like them? So if we are truly going to attract the world by being like the world, we are diminishing the sanctification in which God brings us out of the world to enjoy the freedom from it. But we can still be effective within it. Number four, the church built on social justice. Churches have discovered that it's easier to rally people to a cause than it is to Christ. And in these particular churches, doctrine plays a secondary role, if any role whatsoever. There's no understanding of justification or of atonement or sanctification. There's no understanding of the identity of God. There's no understanding of the inspiration of the Holy Scriptures. But... They gather people, they do good works, they love people in a manner often unbiblically, but it's easier to rally people to a cause than to Christ. And so they've built their church on social justice. And lastly, the church that is built on aged tradition. Aged tradition. This is the way we've always done it. This is the way they did it before us. This is the way they did it before that. You know, if if your church is still selling cassette tapes, it's time to move on. I mean, I know you may be committed to 8-track tapes, but trust me, they're not coming back. There are ideas, there are thinkings that change. There are methods in communicating that change and we have to be understanding to those now those are light ones those are ones that are surface at best but i want to share with you that there are many churches whose tradition blurs doctrine 
And they no longer can see the Bible for what it truly is because their tradition is so dense that they cannot look back to the Scriptures themselves. Building a church on age tradition will fossilize almost immediately because it has lost its true foundation. As one wrote about all of this, I'd like to read this to you. But you know we are living in a time where some people are saying... You know we need to re-envision the church, or we need to reinvent the church. I beg to differ. I think we need to rediscover the church. I don't think we need a new version of it as much as we need to get back to the original version that Jesus himself established. Why? Because of this. The church in the, Old, in the New Testament changed the world. I don't know about the church of today. You know, this is the church that turned the world upside down, speaking of the church of the New Testament. But today it seems to me like the world is turning the church upside down. And so I think that the answer is to get as close as we can to the original foundations and templates that Jesus himself laid down. And he goes on to say, this is what we call the original Greek word of church. And so we want to really explore how they did it and what they did. This is how God's original design for church is indicated. And the church is made up of you and I. Five different ways that the church has been reinvented here in the United States of America that are all faulty from the get-go. And we allow these reinventions to take place because we don't know what the church is or what the purpose of the church is. But now I want to get to one last point, if I may. The reinvention of biblical teaching. And within this portion, this morning, we are going to talk about some of the fundamental ways people process information. The way people process information. In the wake of the reinvention of church that we found in the first five different portraits, once you adopt one of those five, you have to change what happens during the course of a church service to fit within the framework of one of those five reinventions. And since biblical teaching or the message is a large portion of any church service, that portion of the service had to be reinvented. And what we have done over the last 50-some years is we've moved away from textual studies to topical studies, where churches are leaning on a consistent diet of topical teaching rather than textual or what I call totality teaching. There's nothing wrong with teaching topically. There's nothing wrong with it at all. But you know as well as I do that it has its limitations. Number one, you have the limitation that the possibility exists for you always to teach topics that are popular with people and therefore negating anything that would be unpopular with people. Number two, you have the problem with topical teaching that topical teaching can be used as a method of motivation. For example, if we were struggling financially as a church, and I wanted to motivate you through the teaching of the Word of God, and I started a series, a topical series, the five things that God gets fired up about, and the first four are giving, you see the manipulation. These are some of the inherent downfalls of a consistent, topically driven church. As you are fully aware of, I'm sure, that our relative culture obviously can work better with a topically led church than a textually led church. Why is that? As we approach a topic, a topic can be subjective. As you approach any topic, you may find the totality of that topic within the Bible, but the way it is presented, it may be presented in a manner in which it is subjected to the teacher's personal choice. Here's the totality of the topic. There are maybe ten elements biblically specified, but I only want to focus on these three, leaving seven elements of that topic untouched. Now a topic 
can be created or invented that is more like the teacher's understanding of the topic than the Bible's understanding of the topic. And therefore, it becomes relevant. It's all relative. It doesn't matter. This is, a, this is a real problem. God foresaw this in His wisdom and His grace in the manner in which He gave us the Bible. If you read from Genesis to Revelation and you allow the verses to be kept within their context, in fact, there's three different contexts that all verses must be kept in. Three. Number one, when you start with that verse, it must be kept in the context of its, the paragraph in which it's found, the passage that, that it's found, right? Secondly, the second context must be the book, the letter, the totality of the letter. But there's a third context that is often uh, negated, and that is the entire Bible itself, right? Now, if we s- remove that verse from those three contexts, we can come to any conclusion we want to. But it's not necessarily a biblical one, just because it starts with a verse. Does that make sense? But I'm going to complicate your thinking even further. I believe that as we read textually, God perfectly places that verse, that doctrinal truth, He perfectly places it within the letter itself, within the Bible itself, to give you the image clearly. Instead of looking at it one-dimensionally, you're looking at it three-dimensionally. Passage, letter, total Bible. Allowing you, therefore, to see the truth not only expressed, but acted upon, experienced, What did this truth mean to Paul, Peter, John, etc.? It gives you the context. It it, it gives you the proper backdrop, the picture. You know, when an artist paints a picture, there's a background and there's a foreground, right? And maybe there's different uh, intensities between. But don't think for a moment that the background is any less important than the foreground. For the foreground only is the detail that we want to highlight, but the background gives it texture, context, etc. It allows that foreground to be as beautiful as it is, actually is because we're looking at it in completely in the entire picture, not just in one particular spot. The reason the topical teaching is so prevalent today is because churches now have begun to understand how their congregation thinks. And they've discovered that teaching a method is easier than teaching a means. A method is easier than teaching a means. This is why often you will discover that books are written with titles such as this, Five Steps to a Happy Marriage, Ten Principles to Joy, These are methodologies. These are steps in which people take. And the reason they are written in the manner that they are is because of the manner in which people think. And here comes to the $64,000 question. As a believer in Jesus Christ, this question might not be as difficult for you as someone who is not a believer in Jesus Christ. And that is, how do you determine personally what is truth? It's a question that has been posed from the very foundations of the world, but at the moment that I uh, remember it most vividly posed was to truth himself. When Pilate looked Christ in the face and said, What is truth? Interesting question. How do you determine truth? Many of you may not have ever considered that before. How do you determine what is true? If you are like most Americans, the means by which you prove that something is true is through pragmatism. If it works, if it brings about the result that I desire and that I want, it must be true. It must be true. Now, Is it possible to apply God's word pragmatically and determine if God's word is truth or not? That's the question. 
My answer to that is no, you cannot. So many people think this way. Let me just give you an example. Say you're ready to buy an automobile, a car. And one of the steps of the process is you begin to talk to your friends, family members. And what kind of cars do you guys have? I'm thinking about buying a new car. I want to make sure I don't get a lemon. What car would you say I should buy? And you find that there's a consensus in one particular model and one particular make. And so by that consensus, you then go out and proceed to buy a car of that model and of that make. And you get it home and you begin to drive it and begin to use it. And you discover that the car is not all what they stated it was. You're not having the same experience that anyone else that you talked with has had. Now, rational people might just say, it's a lemon. But many people today would say, that wasn't true for me, I'll never do it again. What was true for you doesn't necessarily have to be true for me. How many times have you heard that? This is all reflections of pragmatism. All reflections of people who have determined truth by their personal experience. Can we do that when it comes to the Christian faith? The answer is no. There are two philosophies of the world that have infiltrated in the manner in which people think that has been detrimental to their receiving the teaching of the Word of God. Pragmatism is one, psychology is another. Pragmatism is one, psychology is another. Psychology is, of course, an enormous field, and I'm using that term very broadly. But psychology, like any science, has certain tenets in which it's built upon. One of those tenets is this. All people are basically good. Does that correspond with the same starting point as the Bible? No. So we are now trying to resolve an issue through a means of science that starts at a different beginning point than we do. Are those two ideas then compatible or is one superior to the other? If I approach the Bible thinking that everyone is inherently good, I will teach it in a certain fashion from a certain perspective. If I believe that people have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God and know there is not one good, no, not one, I'm going to approach it from a different perspective. Do you see the difference? And over the years, the integration of psychology has taken again away from the nature of the scriptures, condensing things to formulas and the methodologies that people may apply into their own life to get a certain result, and that result then therefore would hope that it would communicate that it is true. Psychology working together with pragmatism. But when Paul wrote, when Jesus spoke and taught, All the identifiers of learning and growing and changing were all related to agriculture. Planting a seed, watering a seed, reaping the harvest. The characteristics of the Holy Spirit found in our life are not methodological, but agricultural. They're not called results. They're called fruit. And the mystery of the Christian faith is this, that once a person comes to saving faith in Jesus Christ, that's where it all has to start. Once a person comes to saving faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit then resides within them. And as they read the Word of God, the Spirit takes the Word of God and begins to change them from the inside out. And this is a reach that psychology would only hope that it could touch. Often it's just simply dealing with the outward manifestations of inward problems that they are incapable of changing. It's very organic in the Christian faith. I look back now over the last 20 years of my Christian life, 30 years almost, And I will tell you today, I am not the same person who came to saving faith in Jesus Christ in 1986. 
I mean, still a work in progress. I have not arrived, but I am certainly not the same person that I was. And I bet you you can attest to that exact same thing. How God did it, I don't know. I read His Word. I asked Him to help me apply it into my life, to act upon it in my life. And the Spirit of God gave me the ability, but not only gave me the ability for the moment, but changed my heart from the inside out so it was a factor that I didn't want to do those things anymore. What a difference it is, right? When you want to do something and have to resist it, or you don't want to do anything, you don't want to do that any longer, and that resistance is no longer there. I don't have to resist it. I don't want to do it anymore. Those things that I did before I was a Christian, I have no desire to do now. Because God has changed my heart from the inside out. If we're going to approach things through psychology, we're going to tell everybody that they're basically good people. And the moment we tell them that, what are we negating? Their need for a Savior. The need for a Savior. Let me read this to you. Plainly declaring the truth of God's word is regarded as unsophisticated and offensive and utterly ineffective. We are now told that we can get better results by first amusing people or giving them success tips and pop psychology, thus wooing them into the fold. Once they feel comfortable at that point, they'll maybe be ready to receive biblical truth in small, diluted doses. Listen to this. Meanwhile, however, as another one wrote, the attitude within the church is more accepting of psychotherapy than ever before. If the Christian media services is as a barometer of the whole church, a dramatic shift is taking place. Christian radio, for example, once a basin of biblical teaching and Christian music is now overrun with talk shows, pop psychology, phone-in psychotherapy. Preaching the Bible is passe. Psychologists and radio counselors are all the new heroes of evangelicalism. And the Christian radio is is the major advertising tool for selling this form of psychology, which is putting money into the hands of the publishers and the media by the billions. And he goes on to say this, The church thereby is investing heavy doses of dogma from psychology, adopting secular wisdom, and attempting to sanctify it by calling it Christian. If we approach people through a pragmatic means or through psychology, we are missing the mark of the biblical starting point. This is changing what I would call the culture of the church. The reason that the pastor has one idea, the congregation has another idea, is because the foundation of everything has been removed and something else has been inserted at that point. When it comes to pragmatism, one defined it as this. Pragmatism is the notion that the meaning or worth is determined by practical consequences. To a pragmatist, if a technique or a course of action has a desired effect, it is good. If it doesn't seem to work, it must be wrong. As one wrote about the uh, progression of pragmatism, he said this, Pragmatism has its roots in Darwinism and secular humanism. It's inherently relativistic, rejecting the notion of absolute right and wrong, good and evil, truth and error. Pragmatism ultimately defines truth as what it is useful, meaningful, and helpful. Ideas that don't seem workable or relevant are rejected as false. Understand what he's saying there. One of the things pragmatists are really, really opposed to is any kind of overarching meta-narrative. We believe that there's a huge meta-narrative, right? God created the world, man fell, man needed to be redeemed. God is going to consummate all things back to the original form. But God is our meta-narrative. They don't want to be subjected to such a meta-narrative, They want it to be relevant, meaning they can adopt one, you can adopt one, but it's all the same in essence. These things have been dangerous to the Christian church, and they have changed the makeup of it. Again, I read these words to you. See that no one takes you captive or kidnaps you 
by the philosophies and the empty deceits according to human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of this world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. Meaning this, you have no need for anything else. It is Christ. I have been challenged on what is wrong with common sense pragmatism. For example, if I have a leaky faucet at home and I take it apart and I discover that the reason the faucet is leaking is because a washer needs to be replaced. So the pragmatic idea was is that I replaced the washer, it stops leaking, what was the fault? The washer, right? That's pragmatic thinking. What's wrong with that common sense thinking? Nothing. But what you're missing here is that before that pragmatic scenario could be created, the faucet was designed, architected, and engineered by somebody else, wasn't it? It was created to function in a certain way. And all you did was replace a part of its design to make it function properly once again. You didn't throw out the entire faucet and just try to do something else and have consistent running water in your bathroom. Do you see what I'm saying? This is the problem with pragmatic thinking. It's the same way. The doctor diagnoses you by your symptoms. You take a pill, that symptoms go away, and you think, overall, it is, you know, that must have been it, right? Well, what you don't talk about is the fact that that doctor went to school to know how your body works, right? Been created. He knows the anatomy of it. He knows the chemical balances of it. This drug over here has been tested to prove in this kind of result. These are not pragmatic means of fixing things. But if you have a leaky toilet and you replace the, the, the washer on your faucet, is your toilet still going to leak? Yeah. If you go to the doctor with different symptoms but take the same medicine that the first guy was given, are you going to be treated and successfully? No. See, there's a background that they don't consider when they want to get into these particular discussions. But here's what I love what one person has said. But when pragmatism is used to make judgments about right and wrong, or when it becomes a guiding philosophy of life, theology and ministry, inevitably it clashes with the Scriptures. Scripture and biblical truth is not determined by testing what works and what does not work. We know from Scripture, for example, that the Gospel often does not produce positive results, right? I shared with them in love the Gospel of Jesus Christ. I told them about somebody who loves them so incredibly great that He died for them, and they slugged me in the face. What happened? But on the other hand, a worldly philosophy or a satanic lie and deception can be quite effective and well-received by the majority. Majority reaction is no test of validity. And prosperity is no measure of truthfulness. Pragmatism as a guide, guiding philosophy of ministry is inherently flawed. Now I'm going to read this last sentence to you because he's really fired up here. Pragmatism as a test of truth is nothing short of satanic. John MacArthur. But today we live in a time, and I'm going to close with this. Thank you for your time this morning. We have an opportunity more than ever to shine bright in a dark world. But we had to talk about these issues concerning the church before next week we get into some of the specific problems that we have with church leadership and with the congregation. We have to understand why things are working the way they are. We have to understand the design before we can understand why it is faulty. Okay? As one wrote, all these obstacles we face today actually provide great opportunities. In an age where a lot of preaching is virtually indistinguishable from psychology-laden self-help, motivational speaking, and bootstrap-pulling life coaching, a little pressure to get God-centered and doctrinally clarified is long overdue. Some of the greatest theological and practical biblical reflections to serve the mission of Jesus Christ have historically come in response to the kinds of problems we are facing from without and from within today. Now more than ever, 
Now more than ever can we show and demonstrate in our life the effective working of Christ within our lives against a backdrop that's becoming so dark that it automatically adds to the light that shines from with us as Christ lives in and through us. I want to end and conclude with these words from Paul the Apostle once again. As we read from the Scriptures, he asks and warns, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to the human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him, who is the head of all rule and authority, who is the head of all rule and authority.